0: Father, thank you again for giving us your word. Thank you for your mighty acts in history leading up to this very day, being the sole explanation for our even being here in this room, ready to worship your name this morning. It's because of a mighty act of God. Uh, You didn't just do this 3,500 years ago, which is where we're going to go this morning, but you've done it in our own time you continue to work mightily on behalf of your own name and on behalf of your people and in accordance with the promise that you made to Abraham some 4,000 years ago. So we are grateful that you are a promise-keeping God. So lead us, Lord, this morning into your word to benefit from truth and to, to stand in awe of the ways in which you have displayed your glory for your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, well, good morning. And I hope you warmed up your singing voice on the way in because we're going to sing the Old Testament song. You ready? Is anybody ready that wasn't ready last time? You feel more ready than you did last time? Anybody? Okay, so we're going to get pretty much what we got last time, I'm thinking. All right. Ready? Here we go. Creation, patriarch, exodus kingdom, exile, return, silent, names, Adam, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Samson, David, Daniel, Ezra, Pharisees, good, that's great, okay. I saw a lot of lips not moving, I don't know if it's because you're shy and don't want to sing in front of others or because you haven't done your due diligence on learning the OT Hokie. Yes In any case, I obviously am convinced that the song does us much good If, if nothing else, it humbles us to sing a song like the O.T. Hokie uh. Alright, well let's get started this morning This quote from Dillard Longman will prepare us, I think, and kind of set, set the stage The greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament was not the Exodus alone The Exodus was just one half of a great redemptive complex God had not promised his people only that he would redeem them from bondage, but also that he would give them the land he promised to the fathers as their inheritance. The great work of redemption from bondage in Egypt cannot be separated from the inheritance of land that God had promised. The book of Joshua takes us into that inheritance. It describes the conquest and distribution of the land. So the conquest period in Old Testament history takes place roughly around 1400 BC And it's described in the book of Joshua Now the previous era, the era of the Exodus Is described in the Bible between the books of Exodus Through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy So that's where we get this If we want to go into scripture and read the stories that took place in the period of the Exodus You don't just read Exodus you read Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as well. That's all taking place in that same period of time. And then when we get to Joshua, now we're moving into the promised land. <clears throat> we're in a different era. And this, is, this is, I think, growing up, my favorite story. And I actually brought, I found and brought this book, which is the Bible Time Story series, and this is Joshua. This was my favorite listening Activity at my house growing up and it's of course told by the greatest narrator maybe in human history Burl Ives and uh, I used to go into the den and uh, the record player was there in the tape and I would put in my old Burl Ives tape And he would tell me this story Probably over a hundred times I listened to the story so many times matter of fact my, my parents Let me recite this little book in front of the church at one of our church events because I loved this story, and I would just stare at these pictures. I can even, as I was looking at these pictures this week, just remembering the way I felt as a little boy, like just standing in awe of those walls crumbling. just amazing, an amazing story. And, and this series, I don't think it's still in print anymore, but they've got the Esther story, David, Daniel, Jonah, Noah, creation, Saul, Joshua, the first Christmas. But this one clearly, if you looked at all the booklets, is the most worn out book I've got. From my childhood, and I, I love this story, and it's a, it's a powerful story of God's mighty acts on behalf of His people. <clears throat> I think to get a better appreciation for the story of the conquest of God's people into the promised land, we have to go back to the Exodus and grab a thread, and we're going to move forward with that. So let's back up just for a moment and do from Exodus to the border of Canaan. So, so Israel is led out by Moses. Out of the bondage in Egypt And they're led through the Red Sea Remember this And then they're, red, they're led to Mount Sinai And at Mount Sinai the law is given And that's pretty commonly known When we think kind of free association I say Sinai, you say law Or you say Ten Commandments That's very well known But w- what is maybe less appreciated Is that at Sinai Not only was the law given But this is, if you want to remember an acronym Anybody know PTL, is that PTL, praise the Lord, right? Well, PTL works as an acronym for what happened also at Sinai Because P is, there were instructions given about the priesthood So, If you're wondering when that was formalized in the nation of Israel The priesthood, the Levites, Aaron and his sons were called into priestly ministry And those instructions came at Sinai So there's the P of PTL And the next is the tabernacle instructions were given about the assembly the construction of the tabernacle around which the people's worship would center and then the the l is the law so at sinai we get instructions for the priesthood we get instructions for the building construction and worship of god's people at the tabernacle and we get the law all of that is taking place Uh, Here at Mount Sinai It might be good, matter of fact, to go back If you still have your notes from the first week And next to Exodus, when you have creation, patriarch, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, silence Next to Exodus to write, PTL Priesthood, tabernacle, law Because that's all taking place You just want to locate, where did all this happen Obviously the temple is not constructed yet They don't have any land to build a, a giant edifice on. So they built a tabernacle The, the, the temple's not going to be built for roughly 500 more years That is going to be built by, anybody know? Solomon, who was a What was his office in Israel? King, so he can't be building that. This can't be happening in this period Because we haven't gotten to kingdom yet We haven't even gotten to judges yet So that's why, again, the nine eras of Old Testament history It's helpful to think It can't be the temple yet Solomon's not, Solomon is not active He's not, he's not alive Alright, so a tabernacle instituted, God's place comes to God's people Remember the overarching story of the whole Bible God is bringing His people into His place under His rule That's what's happening Now what does the tabernacle have to do with God bringing His people into His place? Turn, if you will, to Exodus We're going to turn a lot of places, so uh, lick your fingers and get them moist We're going to be going all over the place Uh, Exodus chapter 29 And I'll begin reading in verse 42 Now this is at Sinai All this is taking place and they're at Sinai It shall be a regular burnt offering Throughout your generations At the entrance of the tent of meeting That's the tabernacle There it is At the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord Where I will meet with you To speak with you To you there There I will meet with the people of Israel And it shall be That is the tabernacle Shall be sanctified by my glory I will consecrate That is to set apart this tent This is not just your average tent This is set apart as holy by God I will consecrate the tent of meeting And the altar Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. There we got the P and the T in one verse. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. That, so we have a purpose statement. Why did God bring his people out of Egypt? That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord. Their God. So God is going to dwell with his people in the worship of his people around the tabernacle. He's going to manifest his glory. So the tabernacle worship involved the proclamation of God's word. I will speak to the people. He spoke to the people through Moses. So there is the proclamation of the law, proclamation of God's word There are burning incense and intercessory prayer taking place around tabernacle worship And there is worship that centers on an atoning sacrifice Now that hopefully sounds familiar because it's exactly what we're going to do this morning We're going to worship around the theme of an atoning sacrifice We're going to sing songs that declare what God has done His great mighty act in history saving his people from our sins, and then we will pray. There will be prayer laden throughout our time of meeting. There's often prayer at the end of our time of singing. There's often prayer before the message. There's often prayer after the message. Sometimes we come forward and pray together at the end of the service. That's, that's not novel. It's not new. It's been going on for 3,500 years. God's people have been gathering to hear his word, to pray, to sing his praises, and to celebrate the redemptive work of God through atoning sacrifice. So this reminded God's people, this tabernacle-centered worship reminded God's people of two things, of both his holiness and his mercy. It reminded them of his holiness because you didn't just come stumbling into the holy place. You didn't kind of make it up and fly by the seat of your pants. God gave detailed instructions for how worship was to take place and this says something about God's character if you just walked into the holy place it would be the last time you walked into the holy place because you and the rest of Israel were sinful you were completely contrasted with a holy God who's pure in all of his ways And, and demands worship that is centered on and recognizing him but it's not just a display and a portrayal of the holiness of God. There is a portrayal of the mercy of God because guess what? We get to approach Him. And the way, the means through which God's people approached a holy God who would consume them had they not approached Him with shed blood and with the ministry of a high priest. That too should sound familiar. Again, if Jesus was right, and we know He was when He said, All the Old Testament, the law and the prophets and the writings They spoke of me That tells us that when we read the Old Testament We should be seeing these foretastes These foreshadowings of Christ And what he will accomplish when he comes as Emmanuel As Messiah, God with us So here again as we look at the worship of God's people We see it gesturing in the direction of the one who would come And would be the high priest And who would be the lamb and who would shed his blood, and who would tear the veil so that God's people could come into his presence and worship him. Though he is holy, we can come because we're covered by perfect blood. That is all spoken of and gestured in that direction by Old Testament worship. So they can't build a temple yet. Again, they don't have land, and they won't have it. They're nomads. But the point of what what this has to do with God bringing his people into his place Is that even though they're nomads And they're wandering through the wilderness They don't have land yet God is going to bring his presence And make it real to his people before He's not going to wait until they get into the promised land He's going to bring his presence now Through the the worship of the tabernacle And, And so the people are dwelling in tents They don't have houses. They pick up stakes, and they move. And and so the people are dwelling in tents, and God says, I want a tent too. My people have tents. I want to be among my people. I want a tent. And his tent was the tabernacle. And, And when Israel moved, everybody picked up their stakes. They picked up the stakes of their tent. They picked up the stakes of God's tent, and they moved. And then they stopped to give rest to the people, to let the animals graze, et cetera, et cetera. And when they stopped, they all built their tents back up. And God said, I want my tent right in the geographic center of the 12 tribes of Israel. So you would just see tents sprawling across the place, million people or so or more. You would just see tents as far as the eye could see. And if you could zoom out, you would see right in the center of Israel's tents was God's tent. He said, I want to be in the middle of my people. We have these promises in the New Testament where two or three are gathered. There I am right in the midst of them. That has been true of God's people since the Old Testament. He said, "When you put your tents down, when you stay for the night, guess where I am, right in the center of my people. I have to travel with my people, marking them by His presence." Second Samuel, chapter seven, if you can get there, tells this story. David is asking if he can build God a temple at this point in history. This is in the period of the kingdom, right? He says in verse 4 of chapter 7, But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying why have you not built me a house of cedar this is our humble Lord saying I've never asked for a palace matter of fact David I'm about to give you one you want to build me a house I'm going to build you a house and it's going to be beautiful and royal, and your son will get to build me a glorious house of worship, Solomon will build that but, but God basically if you will he, he dwells he travels in a pop-up camper in the wilderness, this is the God of the universe, the creator of all things, he says give me a pop-up camper I'm going to travel with my people this is not an aloof uh, kind of stuck up or snobby deity, this is God who loves to be with His people, who has marked them with His presence from the very beginning. And the beauty of it is, if it's not yet time to bring His people to the Holy Land, God will bring Holy Land to them. And if you're asking where that Holy Land was, the answer to that question is wherever the tabernacle is. (laughs) Where the tabernacle is, that is holy ground. Take your shoes off. We're in the tabernacle. This is a place where God's glory dwells. All right, that leads us to the promise reiterated, land for Abraham's descendants. Turn back to Exodus chapter 23. In Exodus 23, again, we are at Sinai. The law has been given just a few chapters ago in chapter 20. So Moses is still on the mountain with God and God reiterates reviews a 500 or so 500 year old promise that he made to abraham just to go on record and say by the way moses i know it's been a long time since i made this promise to Abraham, but i still intend fully intend and will bring my people into my land and he reiterates these promises verse 20 of chapter 23 behold i send an angel before you to guard you on the way And bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice, this angel, right? Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies. Wow. And an adversary to your adversaries When my angel goes before you This angel is going to go before his people into the promised land This is a great promise, remember this When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites And the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites The Hivites and the Jebusites And I blot them out You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. By the way, this makes no sense to a nomadic people. (laughs) And they're going into places, walled cities with, ar- with giant armies. And God is saying, I'm going to utterly overthrow them. Not just one tribe, but he's naming all these ites, 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 ites. And it's not going to be a problem. I'm just going to barrel right over them. And so you just come with me. My angel's going to lead you in. And he's going to barrel through all these different armies. Verse 29. I will not drive them out from before you in one year. Lest the land become desolate And the wild beasts multiply against you Little by little I will drive them out from before you Until you have increased And possess the land Verse 32 You shall make no covenant With them and their gods That is when you dwell in the land They shall not dwell in your land Lest they make you sin against me This explains why When they're going into these different lands He says utterly wipe them out all of them, because God is jealous for his name and for his worship. And he says, if you go, you're going to live in that prosperous land, and you're going to be tempted because your neighbors are going to say, guess why We had a fruitful crop this year. We worship Baal. And you're going to say, huh, maybe I can add a little Baal to my worship, and I'll be able to also grow a fruitful crop or whatever it is. And he says, I don't want that to happen. So you wipe out the people completely. So that's what he's saying here. Lest they make you sin against me, for if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Now, ironically, while God is speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai about the promised land they're going to go into and speaking about their worship being focused only on God and not making any other gods, guess what the people of Israel are doing at the base of Mount Sinai? They are melting their earrings and their bracelets and they are forming a golden calf. Now Moses doesn't know that, but do you think God does? Yes, do you see the grace of God? He knows what's going on at the foot of Mount Sinai, and yet he's still making promises about land, about inheritance, and he's still urging them and exhorting them to worship him and him alone, not other gods, and so we see again this familiar pattern. We've seen it many times by this point. It's locked in place. The pattern is God is good to his people, right? We could go back and reiterate all the places where this has happened. God is good to his people. His people are inclined to idolatry. And then God comes in judgment and in mercy to reclaim his people. Now, let's fast forward Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So you come to the end of the book of Exodus, and what do you find in the last chapter of Exodus? You find three things. The priests are ready to do ministry. Two. Two. The tabernacle is ready for worship And sacrifices of God's people It might not have blood on it yet But it's going to And it's going to have a lot pretty soon So it's ready for action And three, God's glory dwells among the people Now what's happening in Leviticus? Leviticus, if you're trying to think of references Remembering what Leviticus is doing Think of the Levitical priesthood Leviticus is talking about the Levitical priests The priests of Levi The priest under Aaron And so it is totally taken up with describing what the priests are supposed to do How the sacrifices are supposed to be offered Laws and those kinds of things So that's what Leviticus is talking about It's basically descriptive, not so much a narration of stories and events And then Numbers picks back up in the story In the narration of life in Israel And one way to remember the, the really bad part of Numbers Is to remember Numbers 13 The number 13 is regarded in many places as a sort of omen. Well, Numbers 13 is a really dark moment for Israel because that's when they say, God says, go into the promised land and I'm going to lead the way and I'm going to conquer the peoples for you. And they say, yes, that's great. And they send in these spies. And we know this story, right? And the spies come back and only two of those spies think God is big enough to take over Jericho. The rest of them say, the people are really big, the walls are really big, I don't think we can do this, the time isn't right, let's not do this. And so they vote in unbelief, they vote against God in that moment, and God says, you're not going to believe me? Back to the wilderness, you go. And that entire generation of unbelieving Israelites dies in the wilderness And once the last person who disbelieved the promise of God Drops dead in the wilderness outside of Canaan land And Joshua and Caleb are the only ones that are still alive God comes back to his people and says let's make Joshua the leader And let's go in you know, th- numbers 13 is not going to happen again This time we're going into the promised land Numbers 27, Joshua's name, the new leader Who will take Israel into Canaan And Deuteronomy Is is basically A record of three sermons That Moses preached at the very end Of his life These are the last sermons Recorded speeches that Moses Gave to the people This is a deja vu moment Here they are at the threshold of the promised land And Moses Exhorts them And that exhortation is found In the whole book of Deuteronomy You read Moses' sermons In Deuteronomy As they stood across the Jordan preparing to enter the promised land Which brings us to The promised land Turn to Joshua chapter 1 Oh these words are so wonderful Considering the history of God's people That has led them up to this point Joshua chapter 1 Verse 1 After the death of Moses the servant of the Lord The Lord said to Joshua the son of Nun Moses' assistant Moses my servant is dead Now therefore arise Go over this Jordan You and all this people Into the land that I am giving to them To the people of Israel Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. So believe me this time. I promised this to Moses. Moses is dead. You, Joshua, believe me. Every place your foot treads, I'm going to give you. Verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers some 500 years ago, to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, be careful to do all, according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, But you shall meditate on it day and night So that you may be careful to do According to all that is written in it What is the book of the law? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy The first five books of the Old Testament He says don't forget the first five books of the Old Testament It's going to keep you faithful For then you will make your way prosperous And then you will have good success Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so from the very beginning of this new section of Scripture, right after the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you'll note the transition from the first section of the Bible to the second section of the Old Testament are both marked by an introductory word about the power of God's Word, the life-giving, life-sustaining power of God's Word. How did the Pentateuch begin? What does God do with His Word? He creates the world (laughs) in Genesis chapter one with his word. What does he do? Once we're finished with the Pentateuch and the books of the law are behind us and we're moving into Joshua and beyond, the very opening words of the book of Joshua are, you're going to need my word in order to ensure the faithfulness of God's people. This is going to give you success. You hold on to this book of the law and you will prosper. You keep to my covenant. You follow the path of righteousness. I've told you the way of blessing follow this way and all will be well don't follow this way and all will not be well so god is saying that from the outset as he leads his people in other words the final measurement of the faithfulness of god's people israel is not that they enter into the sacrificial system it's not the festivals it's not carrying out the religious duties it's what do you do with my word do you trust and obey me when i speak that's the way it's been from the very beginning That's why curses came in the garden Satan comes to Adam and Eve And what does he say? What's the first thing he calls into question? God's word Hath God said Is that what God really said to you? Have you understood that correctly? Okay, maybe you've understood it correctly But why did God say that? And now it's calling into question God's character Once again, here we are To ensure faithfulness God tells Joshua Hold on to my word so Joshua holds God's word Before the people and says this is the path Of blessing from God And they speak as though they have complete amnesia To the history Of what they had gone through in the wilderness Sure Yeah we'll do all that We will totally keep the law that's fine Yeah let's go can we, can we go to the promised land We'll keep the law yeah that's fine Look at Joshua 1.13 and 17 The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest And will give you this land They, they answer Joshua just as we obeyed Moses in all things so we will obey you I can almost hear him saying is that supposed to make me feel good Just, just as you obeyed Moses that's how you're going to obey me That's not good news But these people forgot how disobedient how unfaithful they have been And I think there's a lesson for us in this Let he who stands take heed lest he fall Isn't that true Sometimes we can trumpet our spiritual victories in such a way that actually we're putting ourselves in great danger. Take heed, have a sober assessment of our proneness to wander away from God, to be wayward in our worship, wayward in our lives, inclined toward idolatry. And and God is saying that to his people. Listen, know your history, know how weak you are. Because to the degree that you are not self-trusting, you are not confident and boastful of your own spiritual performance, to that degree you'll rely on me and my strength to keep you faithful. And I'll be able to hold on to you. You won't be walking in your own strength or pridefully disconnected from reality. Joshua leads the people out of the wilderness. And what happens as they cross, they come to the Jordan River, And that's their first barrier To go into the promised land And hearkening back to what God did with Moses God God tells Joshua in the opening chapter Just as I was with Moses So I will be with you And the proof of it The river parts The Jordan River miraculously opens up before them And they cross over on dry land Now the new generation of Israelites Had not been circumcised So now it's time to circumcise This new generation of Israelites And circumcision was a symbol of the fact that as you go into the promised land, you need to remember that you are set apart from the nations. You are not like them. You are my holy people, and I am jealous for your worship. I'm jealous for my glory among my people. And so they go through this covenant ceremony of circumcision. And then something very interesting happens in Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, (laughs) but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And of course, Joshua did so. He was a wise man in that moment. Now, the last time that we saw an angel standing on the threshold of holy land with a sword in his hand was where? Eden. Eden. What had just happened God's people had been unfaithful They were driven out of the land Out of God's place His people were in his place Under his rule And then they sinned And turned on God And they're ejected from God's place And there's an angel standing there With a flaming sword You can't come back in here This is God's holy place Now we see an angel standing At the threshold of the promised land But this angel is not barring access He's going to lead the people into the promised land. This is the angel spoken about to Moses in Exodus 23. My angel will go before you into the land. This angel is carrying a sword so that he can bring the people into the land, not so he can keep a sinful people out of the land. This is a much different situation. Now, why, when Joshua gives him these two Options, okay, you're either for us or against us That seems pretty clear You only got two options You're either for us or against us And the angel says, no I don't like either one of your options Uh, Are you with us? Are you standing with us? Well, Joshua is a leader There's no doubt about that But he needs to be clear on the fact that God isn't on Joshua's side Uh, Joshua doesn't have a side with his name on it He's not that big He's not at that pay grade And this angel is serving, notice, actually, let me introduce myself. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. I'm the captain of the host, and this sword isn't just a token symbol of authority. I'm going to use this thing. I'm going to use this thing to get God's people into God's place, and you're going to be following me. I'm not with you, actually. You're going to be joining me. I'm leading the people into God's place. And so... Joshua's response is appropriate, he falls at the feet of this angelic messenger and worships, and it's interesting, when he falls at the feet of this angel and begins to worship, the angel doesn't stop him, which I think gives us a signal of who this angel is. Some scholars believe this is a theophany. We talked about theophany a few weeks ago where it's a visible manifestation of the invisible God. So the burning bush is a theophany and the smoking torch that passes through the pieces was a theophany. But many scholars believe this is a Christophany. This is a revealing of the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Christ himself with a sword in his hand in the Old Testament about to lead God's people into his place. And that brings us to Joshua chapter 6. <coughs> I think the fear that the people in Jericho are feeling has everything to do with the captain of the Lord's army standing with the sword. Look at Joshua chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. That's a way of saying all the bolts were locked. The doors were closed. They're shut up inside. Now, there's no activity in all of the walls of Jericho because of the people of Israel. None went in. None went out and none came in And the Lord said to Joshua See I have given Jericho into your hand With its king and its mighty men of valor Now why are these people so afraid of nomads Outside the gigantic walls of Jericho Rahab knows And she's going to give us an eye in Turn back to Joshua chapter 2 Rahab knows why they're so afraid Chapter 2, verse 8. These spies sneak in. They're brought in by this woman named Rahab who says, Come on inside. I know who you are. I know why you're here. Come on, sneak on inside and let's talk. She lets them in. Before the men lay down, she came to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. (laughs) It's amazing. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. That doesn't sound like a good day, does it? To Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. That is all of Jericho. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God... He is God in the heavens above And on the earth beneath Three interesting things about this woman Rahab One, she's a pagan harlot Who plays a key role in the overthrow of Jericho This very speech heartens God's people It helps them remember The moment when God said to Moses I will send my terror before you So she's part of this heartening Uh, Of Israel Number two She's a foretaste Of the purpose of God To save not only Jews But Gentiles She is living proof That God intends To save people From all nations There are these moments Throughout redemptive history In the Old Testament Where you find out Gentiles are going To get included They're getting included already And more of them Lots more of them Are going to get included When the new Joshua comes Number three I don't think it's Salmon I think it would be Salmon But Salmon and Rahab have, what an understatement, have really important children. You can flip over to Matthew chapter 1 to find out who that's going to be. Matthew 1, oh man, I don't know if I'm going to get done in time, yikes. Matthew 1 verse 5 and 6. There's Salmon, verse 5 And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth These names are going to be way more familiar And Obed, the father of Jesse And Jesse, the father of David, the king Skip down to verse 16 You follow that same lineage from David And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary Of whom Jesus was born Who is called Christ Now, in just a matter of days, every human being in Jericho will be dead. Every human, every living creature in Jericho will be dead days from now, except one family. Why? In large part, because Jesus wouldn't be born if this woman died in Jericho. And so God keeps his promise to Adam, I'm going to raise up offspring from the seed of the woman, who will conquer the serpent. That promise would not have been fulfilled if Rahab died in the rubble of Jericho. But God in his sovereignty leads them to Rahab, puts a word in Rahab's ear. She hears the word on the street. She lets them in. She tells them, when you come in, would you save me? I believe in the God of Israel. She puts her faith in the God of Israel. She marries an Israelite named Salmon. They have children who make an eternal difference for our lives. Now, why would a mighty city like Jericho fear a nation of nomads, fear a marching band (laughs) walking around in circles? It makes no sense unless Exodus 23's prophecy was true when God said, I will send my terror before you. In other words, God's reputation preceded him. The word of the God of Israel got to Jericho before the people did, and they feared the God of Israel. Of Israel they heard the stories of the plagues the angel of death the parting of the Red Sea the mighty people of Jericho had all the doors bolted it wasn't the Israelites they feared it was the God of Israel one of the major themes in the whole book of Joshua is that God fights for his people that God is a God who conquers on behalf of his people look at these three texts there there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. This quote from Dale Ruff Davis. As soon as Yahweh brings Israel through the Jordan into Canaan, he commands Joshua to circumcise a generation of men who form the cream of Israel's army. A bit of heaven's gall, it seems, even if the enemy is intimidated, Anyone with a bit of memory knows what can happen to people whose fighting men have been rendered helpless during recovery from such surgery. (laughs) Yet here in hostile territory, Yahweh first off requires Joshua to disable his whole army. But the insane procedure packs its own point. Israel's protection rests with the arm of Yahweh, not with the sword of her warriors. So the conquest of Jericho is not a 50-50 cooperative effort. The nation walks in circles, and God brings the walls down. God is in charge. God is fighting for Israel. Matter of fact, the name Joshua means Yahweh saves. That's what his name means. All right, defeats and victories. Now, I I wish the end of the story of Jericho was Jericho fell, Israel stopped wandering in the wilderness. They enjoyed God's blessing and lived happily ever after. But that is not what happened. God had given undeserved grace to this people Time and time again But they needed to be clear That God was not soft on disobedience He commanded the allegiance of his people Their faithfulness to him And God was not kidding When he called his people to be a holy people In the midst of unholy nations around them They were to reflect As Adam and Eve had been called To reflect God's image They were to live in such a way That blessing would come to all nations of the earth They were in a word In New Testament terms They were to be salt and light in the world, a city set on a hill. That was their call that under God. But the reality is, though they were in the Holy Land, there was unholiness in their hearts. There were aspects of God's promises to Abraham that were already being experienced by Israel as they came into their homeland. But those promises were not yet fully realized in their experience. So there's this already, not yet. That's the same thing, the, the same is true for our lives as well. They were already God's people, but only some were faithful to God. They were already in God's place, but enemies and temptations were still everywhere present. They were already under God's rule, but even the most faithful among them demonstrated faithlessness and disobedience. And so, in the very next chapter after they conquered Jericho, they lose the Battle of Ai. Because because Achan is a representative of the people. Achan sins, and he takes some of the plunder, some of the spoils of battle. Instead of devoting them to destruction, separating from them as unclean, he takes some of them and hides it in his own tent. And judgment comes. God comes in judgment. But in that moment, and, you know, there are many places where we find out that the Lord our God is a jealous God, and he says, my name is jealous. But this is a place... In the Old Testament, we find many places like this where we see God's jealousy in living color. How do we see it? Achan and his family, oxen, goats, rams, everything that belonged to him, his tent, his furniture, and it's all put on the burn pile before the people of God. God is jealous for his glory. He's jealous to have a holy people for himself, displaying and reflecting his glory. And so all of that goes up in smoke before Israel and they see in living color, God is serious about obedience. He is holy. He's made us his people. But there is grace at the same time because when they repent and they side with God against those who are out of step with and disloyal to God, when they side with God and they repent, guess what God says to his people? He says, let's go back to Ai. This time I'm coming with And the story is much different God fights on behalf of his people, his repentant faithful people. Now, how do these themes get picked up and carried forward in the New Testament? Conquest, the New Testament fulfillment, well in the person and work of Christ. Jesus says, or this is said of Jesus, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, how did Christ accomplish this? How did he come and destroy the works of the devil? Colossians 2:13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross what else did you do on the cross this is, this is fascinating Christ while he was on the cross was disarming the rulers and authorities And put them, this is the irony of the wisdom of God. Jesus is at open shame, naked. And what is he doing in his nakedness? He is exposing and shaming his enemies. And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He said, it is finished. What was finished? The just wrath of God against your sins and my sins, that was finished. The bondage of sin, slavery to Satan, that was finished by Christ on the cross. Death's ability to talk smack to God's people, to get in our heads and give give us fear. Not that it doesn't give us fear, but there's no cause for believers to fear because of what Christ has accomplished. He's taken the sting of death away by rising from the dead. Mark Dever says, having led this conquest, Joshua was a type of Jesus Christ, our great captain who has conquered not a passing earthly kingdom, but sin and sin's horrible offspring, death. The already not yet in our own experience. This also is a parallel from what we saw in the people of Israel in the time of the conquest. There is something in our experience like Israel in the conquest period. We have our Jericho moments, don't we? We have our AI moments as well. Isn't that true? We have our moments where We feel the strength of God and we're swinging the sword and battle and believing God against the circumstances of our lives and saying, God, thank you for grace and feeling the wind of his grace in our sails and then there are these moments where in our pride we are laid low, we are humbled, we are defeated. We see our own sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Hebrews 12 talks about Sin which easily entangles us. That won't be true in the new conquest. That won't be true when we go into Canaan land. And all is fulfilled. All is consummated. There will be no wrestling with sin. There will be no battle between flesh and spirit. Our hearts, everything in us, will be united in the fear of the Lord. All there will be is pure, unadulterated worship before God. What a day that will be. You can read those other texts that also talk about the sense in which we're not there yet we haven't arrived all is not completed we already have an experience of the fulfillment of the promises but they're not fulfilled in their full realized form and then the simultaneous day of judgment and inheritance if you want to see this angel that's standing in Joshua with the sword in his hand if you want to see him again first you see him in the Garden of Eden And then you see him in Joshua. And then you see him again in Revelation chapter 19. He's got fire in his eyes. He's got a sword. He's got a robe dipped in blood. He's got written on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's coming to do battle. And this day is a day simultaneously of judgment against the wicked and all who have sided with Satan and borne allegiance to him. And it is at the very same time a day of grace and mercy for all who have turned for refuge in Christ. I'm not going to read Isaiah 35. We'll have to save that for the return from exile, I think. Just as Joshua and the people were to remove every shred of evidence that paganism ever reigned in Canaan, so every shred of earthly resistance to God's reign will crumble on the day of judgment when the new Joshua comes in all his glory. The earth will also, it will be burned clean and then renewed. God will be exalted through an act of judgment and salvation. His glorious justice will come against men like those who have imitated the pride of pagan Jericho. His glorious mercy will rescue all who like Rahab the harlot have repented and trusted in God. The point, I think, of this period is to be reminded that God never intended to simply bring his people out of bondage and leave us. That is not the end of the redemptive story. He is bringing us out to bring us in to the promised land. We have been brought out of bondage to slavery so that we might be brought at the end of the day to heaven itself, to the new Jerusalem, to Canaan land, to the land of milk and honey, to the land of prosperity and righteousness and peace and joy unspeakable and full of glory. The entire new Jerusalem will be the shape of the most holy place. In the tabernacle it's a cube the only other cube in the bible apart from the new jerusalem is the holy place the most holy place and so that will signal to us this entire space the earth is indeed full of the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the water covers the sea there will be no veil in heaven god's people will leave this egypt and worship him in the splendor of holiness Because of the victory of the new and greater Joshua God's people will be in his place Under his rule and blessing forever And these words which form the climax Of the book of Joshua Will be fully experienced on that day Oh listen to this in light of what's to come Thus the Lord gave to Israel As his people All the land that he swore to give to their fathers And they took possession of it And they settled there And the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Let's pray. Lord, we we look forward to saying those words in the city of Zion. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel have failed. They have all come to pass. Come, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, Judges.